0: move this so mark want you come a little more center stage because this is being filmed and we do want you guys seen we don't want a voice coming from uh off the side of the screen where nobody sees the voice it's mark they might confuse his voice as god answering certain questions but now that we see him we know he's not and uh so next sunday we'll start the uh roman series we'll start with chapter one i'll be in india so mark is going to launch our new series Romans chapter one so this week Read Romans chapter 1, and let the Holy Spirit show you some things, and then Mark will come and teach. Make sure I'm not missing anything. I think we're good to go. Are you guys ready? Okay, yeah, okay, so we need, yeah, we got this mic, okay, you guys just show that mic, and then we have, uh, we have over here, we have a mic. Josh, are you going to man that mic? All right, okay, so you're leading worship, and you are? Man in a mic, and Francisco, you're man in the other side. Okay, so we need a mic for uh, Francisco. We have one, two. And uh, is this the testimony mic that we need over here? Okay, you guys, good.
1: Man, we got it good.
0: Okay, so here's how we're gonna run this today, family. Last week we started with live questions, and what we did not get to was were questions that were handed in uh, the three weeks. Uh, prior to our teaching series, which is not fair to those who took the time to write down their questions and then hand them in. So what we're going to do is we're going to start with the written questions that were handed in, and then, time permitting, we are going to uh, take some live questions. So actually, uh, Francisco and Josh, you get the, the the, the privilege to sit down and relax and listen. Here are some pointers real quick for the live questions keep your answers short and to the point um you got 30 seconds when we go live and this is not a gotcha session where we're trying to stump the panel uh this is to answer questions to help you in your faith and to help you have good answers to good questions for those who have not yet come to christ who uh need some questions answered so this is about equipping not about challenging the panel So, with that, I'm going to start. So, some of the questions that came in, guys, had to do with biblical inconsistencies. Have any of you ever uh, wondered or had people say to you, well, the Bible contradicts itself. There are places in the Bible it talks about, uh, the stories are different, like in the Gospels. Like Mark wrote this about the same event that Luke wrote this, but they they have different details. Any of you ever uh, seen that before in your Bibles, have been asked those questions. Okay, so we're going to look at a few of these biblical inconsistencies, and we're going to clean it up today. So one of them is the timeline of the crucifixion. This was handed in, and Les, I'm going to ask you if you would uh, respond to this. Uh, Jesus said himself that he was going to be in the belly of the earth, belly of the earth like Noah, uh, or like uh, Jonah, three days and three nights. And so if he was crucified on Friday, that only gives us a couple nights. So can you explain that to us? Okay, I don't hear him. It's green.
1: So the three-day, three-night quote by Jesus is a tripping point for some people. But this would be a fun exercise for all of you who want to be able to read the Bible carefully and figure things out. Because there are a lot of verses around 20 events that occurred during the time of Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection to try to put them into a timeline. But the thing that trips people up is that under the Jewish calendar, the Sabbath, which is Saturday, would start at sundown on Friday Uh rather than the first sunrise of the morning or at 12.01 midnight, which is what we're used to. So when we read this verse, we typically think of 12.01 midnight starts the next day. But the Jews would have believed it started the prior day at sundown. A second issue that throws the timeline into skew is that this was also uh, a feast and a preparation day, which was a high Sabbath. And the Bible does mention the high Sabbath, which was on Friday. The regular Sabbath then was on Saturday. So we had two Sabbaths in a row this week. So the, the bottom line is you have to look at a variety of different parts. Remember the people on the road to Emmaus, they were talking to Jesus, telling Jesus how long he'd been dead. So that's an important verse. Okay. Uh, you know, Matthew says this, that the women went back to the tomb to prepare Jesus after the Sabbaths, plural. That's why they let him lay an extra day without tending to him before the Saturday Sabbath. Because there were two Sabbaths in a row. So the bottom line is if you tried to put all this together, and you know that many of the holidays were, you know, implemented on our seven-day calendar, Uh, not necessarily the exact day that it happened back in 30, you know, 30 or 33 AD, but we have more recently celebrated Friday as Good Friday, and we believe that's when he went, but if you calculate it according to all the evidence, I believe you'll find that Thursday was the day before Passover Passover meal started at sundown Thursday night and ran through Friday. So that was the high Sabbath. So Jesus was on the cross Thursday. He was taken down. The Passover meal was that night. The next day started the day that the women went to buy the new spices. Then the next Sabbath started and they couldn't go and actually do it until Sunday
0: morning. That's great. You see how our Western uh, understanding sometimes Trips us up. I mean, just God can clear up anything. We just gotta, we just have to study. We have to be good brands and study it out. And you can find, especially with the internet now, you can look these things up and find all sorts of great information. Though you don't have the dynamic presentation as you do with us here at this panel. So the next question is genealogies. You look at Matthew, you look at Luke. They have different genealogies with different names, and it can be very confusing. And uh, so we're going to turn to Mark Myers and ask him to clear up. Uh, the genealogy question.
2: Okay, well a lot of the New Testament and it, it, the Bible generally it, people interpret it today as if it were written by a 21st century Westerner which it was not. Um, we have ways of speaking that are ingrained in us and we think they're natural and normal and that's the way everyone does them but it ain't so. Um, people relate to what happened in different ways. We leave out events that we don't think are important, important part of the story. We speak generally when we and th- say things that aren't literally true, but everybody everybody understands what we mean. Genealogies are a good example of that. Um, they're written in, in biblical terms. They're written for different reasons. Some are written to show physical descent. Some are written to show ceremonial perp- something, legal something. Um, who belongs to the house or line of someone else. Um, and things like adoptions or treating this person as that person's son or descendant can uh, cause differences between different kinds of genealogies. So you, you, you may not realize what kind of genealogy you're dealing with, and it, do, it doesn't, for our purposes, it doesn't really matter. But um, let's look at the one in Matthew. Can, can you put up the one... Matthew one one. In our Western terms, we think of genealogy as this person is the biological parent of that person. And it's a parent-child relationship. And in the biblical genealogy, it isn't necessarily so. If you look at verse 1 of Matthew chapter 1, which is right before the genealogy starts, it says this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So if, you, if you're like David had a bunch of sons, but he lived way before Jesus, right? And Abraham too. And so when you look at that, you think, if you're being very literal, you think, okay, Jesus had two fathers and they lived thousands of years before him. That's obviously not true. What this means, the meaning of this is Jesus is descended from David. He belongs to the house and line of David, important because the Messiah was supposed to come from the house and line of David. And he's a descendant of Abraham. He's he's part of the promise of Abraham. So that's the purpose that this genealogy is written for. Um, there, I don't want to get into all the details, but there are a lot of ways that one genealogy can differ from another. Um, somebody is adopted. Somebody is brought in as somebody else's son that they're not literally the physical child of. And so there there can be differences between genealogies that that don't really affect things for our purposes.
0: So the writers had purposes. Yep. For why they wrote the genealogies right. the way that they did. Right.
2: They freely leaves out, leave out generations, many generations. And this is a good example of that. They left out that's awesome. many generations here. That,
0: that's great. Thank you, Mark, for that. So I
1: just a quick, yeah, I just a quick comment? The, the Luke genealogy is more like what we would do. A, a legal genealogy of who begat, who begat. He goes almost 72 generations. Matthew only goes 42. So, but Matthew's... Tracing the priestly line and the king line to show that we do get Jesus all the way back to David and all the way back to the promise of Abraham.
0: Okay. Um, another question that came in was, uh, and you know, these are good questions because they represent uh, stumbling blocks for those of us when we're reading the Bible and we wonder about things like this, and it and it makes us uh, feel like the Bible is not credible. If, uh, if, if there seemed to be inconsistency. So one of them would be a story where Jesus said that, um, that David ate bread during the uh, Abiathar being the high priest, and yet uh, we know historically he was not the high priest at that time. So how could Jesus say that David was eating the show bread in the temple during the high priestly uh, time of Abiathar when he wasn't the high priest at that time?
1: Yeah, this, uh, this story is only mentioned in one sentence. So whoever, whoever threw that one in there, um, I hope this will answer that question. But it's in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel 21. It says, uh, uh, Abiathar, who is Ahimelech's son. That, that's important. Abiathar was Ahimelech's son. And it, in the Samuel account, uh, we see that David went in and got showbread. But then Jesus tells this story in the New Testament. And in fact, Jesus adds seven or eight new facts to the story. So it was important to him to talk about it. But Jesus refers to the person uh, as Abiathar who gave David the showbread rather than Ahimelech. Uh, probably a few reasons for this. One is that in the high priest, we see this in the, in the Gospels. A father and son who took over for each other, they often will call the son High priest as well, especially during the transition period. We recently just found archaeological evidence that one of the kings who Daniel had said was king at a specific time, everybody knew was a contradiction. He wasn't at that time. But we just recently found archaeological evidence that showed that his son was king for two years while the king went out to fight to war. So on official documents that were recently discovered, it showed the Bible was, has always been true, where we always thought it was a contradiction. So in a similar vein, what we have here is Ahimelech was the priest in a place called Nob. And that's where David got the showbread. But when Jesus talks about the high priest, he's talking about the priest in Jerusalem, who was his son.
0: Hmm. Awesome. So, Very good. Yeah. Very good. Um, another question. Uh, The variations in the stories of the demoniac, where uh, one writer talks about, if you guys remember the story of the guy that was chained up, he's out in the desert, and uh, he was demon-possessed, and nobody could control him. And one writer talks about one demoniac, or one demon-possessed man, another writer of the Gospels says there were two demon-possessed men. So you read that, and again, you start thinking these guys didn't know what they were talking about. They should have compared notes before they wrote their Gospels, which means it's not inspired by the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit doesn't make mistakes. So, Mark,
2: why? Oh, uh, somebody else gave this answer, but what a general thing to, re- general thing to remember. Um, who, who wrote the answer, right? It wasn't me. I did. You did. <laughs> oh, well, you, you want to answer the question?
0: I'll answer
2: it. One, one answer? thing here's here's something to remember. I did talk about how we we when we account tell an account of what happened, we have a certain way of telling things, and if we think that everyone in the world throughout history does the same thing, we we make a mistake. People don't necessarily all fill in the in the details for us. So that's something to remember. But the. Early church, the people who were deciding whether this book and this book and this book should go into the New Testament were much closer in time to the events and in culture to the events. And they looked at all these different books, and they accepted some of them, even though to us they might look different, and they rejected some others. So bear that in mind. The people who were close in time and close in culture had a chance to examine them for contradictions. Some of them they rejected some of them they accepted, and the ones they accepted are the ones we have. So I'll let you address the question. So they of this vetted story. this, and it's not like
0: these perceived inconsistencies escaped them.
2: No. A lot of people treat it as if—a lot of people nowadays think that, like, suddenly in the 20, 21st century we've discovered all these things, or the 20th century or whatever. Yeah. You make a terrible mistake if you, if you think that.
0: Yeah. yeah. So uh, in this account of the two different stories— Uh, simply put, when you tell a story to somebody about a party you went to or an event you went to, you're telling specific aspects of it, and somebody else says, oh yeah, and, and then they add to the story. It's just storytelling. Both Luke and Mark both talk about a demon-possessed man that got set free from Jesus. Luke just simply says there were two demon-possessed men, but he didn't say they both got set free. They just both wrote about the one who came and ran to Jesus, fell at his feet, and that man got set free. So one says one was there that got set free, one says two were there, but capitalized on the one that got set free. So they focused on the man that got set free from Jesus, not who knows what happened to the other guy. He obviously didn't come and run to Jesus' feet and get set free from his demons. So um, another question that came in, is this working for everybody? You guys okay with this? I know it's not as dynamic as if you grab a mic and we don't know what's coming next, which is kind of exciting. But we do want to answer these questions that people took the time to write in. So another question that came in, I'm sure some of these questions are on your mind. The Bible says that, you know, in in, uh, children's church, uh, most of us are raised in children's church, where they talked about, you know, the song of two by two, Noah took the animals in the ark two by two. Well, the Bible also says that he took them in by sevens. So what's true? Did Jesus take the animals in by twos or by sevens? Who would like to answer this one?
1: Well, I think you just did. Uh, You know, it says two by two, but then the very next uh, verse in the Bible says, and take seven more of the clean animals. So I think we have two things going on. One would be for sacrifices uh, because they were still making sacrifices to the Lord and you only sacrifice clean animals. And it could also be that they were necessary for food for the carnivores uh, for the next 40 days because I don't think you can make a lion go on a fast. I mean, I, miraculously you can. But the bottom line is you're going to need a few a few extra animals for food. And he, so the two was for mating and continuation of the species. The seven was for food and for sacrifice. Remember, there were several birds released uh, when it quit raining. So he had to have more than one in case the first one that was released never came back, which it didn't.
0: Very good. Anything else? Okay. Did you mention that if he sacrificed an animal and he only had two that were in trouble? Okay, great. Because I was having a...
1: We were hoping mosquitoes
0: would be sacrificed. Yeah. Yeah, huh? Then we wouldn't have to take the malaria pills this week. Um, Okay, so another question that came in, which uh, everybody might be interested in, is uh, the Bible says that we are to give thanks to God in everything. And I think we all understand that right when you're in the midst of the worst situation giving thanks to God in the midst of your pain takes real faith and real humility and for those that have done it you know you get real breakthrough because it takes you beyond your understanding but there's also Paul writes give thanks to God for everything which you can get in some weird territory so I'm going to ask I'm going to throw this one to Mark and ask Mark are we supposed to give God thanks for everything Mark
3: no uh, when Paul says give God thanks for everything it has to be read in the context of his comment um, in Romans that all things work together for good to those that are called according to his purpose. So, when Paul says all things work together for good, he's talking about uh, final outcomes. He's talking about um, what is good for our soul, maybe not just what is good for our bodies. What is good for our character, not just what is good for our finances. So, giving thanks to God in everything is pretty straightforward. You you can always find a reason to thank God no matter what crisis you're in. You can always... Look, the worst crisis in the world is going to end with your death. And what happens after that? Face to face. You spend eternity in the presence of complete and perfect joy. So we always have to see our lives in the context not just of here but the hereafter. But giving thanks for everything is looking beyond the circumstance to saying he is going to accomplish something in this circumstance which is wonderful. And it's not uh, present to me right now, and I don't see it right now, but I'm going to trust him that he is going to bring something good out of this mess. And um, this is a little bit of a personal comment, but you remember uh, when I was uh, with a stress fracture in my right hip and I was on crutches for several months. I remember at the beginning of it being really bummed about it. Well obviously you know it wrecks your schedule, it changes trips, it messes with your life. And then the thought crossed my mind I think maybe he told me this thought said well you know you can glorify God in uh, inconvenience and suffering just as much as you glorify God when your prayers are being answered. And that dawned on me in a major way and I thought you know this is an opportunity for me to glorify God in the middle of a somewhat difficult phase so i'm going to make that my goal i'm going to make that my goal to glorify him in how i go through this and um, it changed the character of of the whole process it really did and that was a minor suffering that was not suffering that was mere inconvenience but in our culture we define suffering as inconvenience and inconvenience is suffering (laughs) so there i was just horrifically suffering but i found a way to rise above it and and God could be glorified in how I handled my inconvenience. And I'm not making light of any of you that are suffering genuinely. I, I know that it's beyond anything I could ever bear. But we got to remind ourselves that good can come out of anything if God is involved in it. Right on. If we find him in our sufferings, good will come out of our sufferings. If we don't find him in our sufferings, it's just sufferings.
0: Wow, that was awesome. Good stuff. Um, So, and Mark, I want to testify, knowing you for, what, 17 years now or so, um, you went through that. Clearly, you had made an internal decision, um, and uh, you just didn't complain, And, uh, and you refused the stool, which is pretty
3: cool. I'm getting older, and I'm prone to worrying. It's something I inherited from my mother's side of the family. And and I've grown in my faith tremendously, but I worry something fierce and I wake up in the night worrying about all sorts of things and can't sleep. And and, and it's driving me, my weakness is driving me crazy. I'm ashamed of it. And I said to the Lord the other day, you know, I, I, I'm so disappointed in myself. I mean, I've known you for so long. All you've been is great. Why am I worrying like this? And And he spoke to me and he said, you know, Your worry is an opportunity to exercise trust. So I just decided okay, every time worry arises, this is my chance to trust the Lord. And it might be my last chance to really trust Him. And I'll tell you what, you guys, it's crazy. I wake up in the night and the worry comes, and I smile and I say, Thank you, Jesus, for this chance to exercise trust. (laughs) Oh, wow. And and, and seriously, like the the, the worry is, is subsiding, the joy is increasing. And I actually find myself rejoicing with these problems that I'm looking at in my future. And I'm thinking, this is my chance to trust the Lord. Mm-hmm. And I'm growing in trust. And I wouldn't be doing that without these, these issues. So oh, wow. he's, he's redeeming something here that is making me really happy. Well, that was worth the buck you put in the bucket, right? Right there.
1: Uh, can I add one thing to that?
3: Yeah,
0: we're going to have The time.
1: Lord loves the sacrifice of your heart. He's love sacrifice all through the Bible. You're not going to be able to do sacrifice after you're That's dead. Right. So right. the, taught, the Bible talks about thanksgiving and praise being sacrifices. So when Mark's up in the middle of the night or you're up in the middle of the night, you, Lord, I give you this, this anxiety. I give you this fear, Lord, as a sacrifice to how good you are. I know it's not going to turn out bad. You know, I praise you, Lord. I give you praise even though I feel like I'm under pressure. I praise you because I know how good you are. So you're giving your sacrifices that you're not going to be able to give to him later.
0: That's awesome. What a trigger. So the devil has just given you a trigger of praise whenever I'm anxious.
3: And the devil's joy has been denied to
0: him. And the devil's joy has been denied to him. I love that. That's awesome, Mark. You're growing, man.
3: Accidentally.
0: (laughs) He says accidentally. I also want to clarify something. You were right last week when I said you started a seminary down in Guadalajara. You prophesied a seminary like 10 years ago? Okay. And then they called you up and said, hey, come teach in our seminary. And you said, what seminary? And you said, they said, the one you prophesied 10 years ago. It
3: it wasn't 10 years ago.
0: It was a couple of years before they instituted it. It was a couple of years before they instituted it. Okay, great. So you did start it. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the Holy Spirit started it through prophecy. That's awesome. Uh, Here's one that there's a light topic, um, does God send people to hell? Does God send people to hell? And what about those who have never heard? Mark, I
2: ahead. will I will talk about the hell topic. Um, <laughs> we we've had a teaching on on the nature of love and how love it gives us a choice. Nobody nobody is force to love. If there's, if there's force or duress involved, it's not really love. That's something else. That's like Bill Cosby territory. But that is not everybody here knows that is not love. Right? There's nobody here that thinks that, that love forces people into a relationship. That's, that's not love. God gives us a choice um, to, to choose him or to choose not him. Um, everything that is good Everything that is good flows from God and comes from God. Apart from him, we have no good thing. He is the source of every good gift. If we have God, if we choose God, he will give us the gift of himself. He will, he will take us as his own. And we will have every good thing. If we choose not God, or if we say, I don't want God as he is, but I want him to, to change and be something other than what he is, then, well, that's not an option. God is who he is. He, he says, I am who I am. You're not going to change God. You're not going to get a God who will let you sit on the throne or a God who isn't holy or something like that. That's not God. So if you're choosing that, you're choosing not God. You can choose God. You can have everything that is good. You can choose not God, and you will have nothing that is good. And if you, if you choose hell, you can have hell. God will let you choose that. So, as far as God sending you there, you're, it's your choice. It's, your, it's you choosing to go one place or the other.
0: Okay. Mark, did you have something to add to that? Yeah.
3: Um, Just on the person who's never heard the name of Jesus, and, and we have to face that. Yeah. These people groups unreached, they are dying never having heard the name of Jesus. Now, does that fact that they have never heard the name of Jesus deny them salvation. Um, Paul says in Romans, (laughs) well, I'm teaching on it next Sunday, that uh, creation reveals, uh, reveals the very divine nature of God. So from nature, we can derive two facts. God is incredibly powerful and he's incredibly good. And when an individual who's never heard the plan of salvation... In, this is my opinion. I'm not saying I'm right, but this is how I figure it out. When an individual somewhere has never heard the plan of salvation, but he's reached the, he or she has reached the conclusion from looking at nature that God is both powerful and good. And that person prays to their unknown God and says, I know I am not good, and I know you are. I don't know how you did it. I don't know how, when, when you did it. I don't. I don't know the mechanism of this, but I am going to put trust in your goodness that you have done something to save me from my badness. I believe that person is going to see him face to face.
1: Likewise, for the children, people say, "Well, what about children uh, or people who are mentally retarded or uh, you know, have some other defect that they might not be able to understand the word of God?" Uh, the Bible's. Gives us a lot of verse on how much God loves children, how their angels are constantly before the face of God, He protects them. Uh, you know, beware the person who uh, would lead a little one astray. So, there's a lot showing that God really loves children. Uh, and King David lost a child through with Bathsheba, and he said, "I know that I will be reunited with my baby. You know, when I die." So. There's a, not one specific verse that just says, and all young children, you know, before the age of being able to make their own choice, uh, will go to heaven. But when you put all of them together, that's what you see. Is like both Mark said, you know, it's about your freedom to choose. And until you have that and can exercise that, I believe that, you know, the children and the, those others will be in heaven.
2: You didn't have scripture, but I will give you some. Um, the. He who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. Those are, those are two things that are required to come to God by faith. Also, Hebrews, the whole chapter of Hebrews uh, 11 uh, talks about people who, were, who lived long ago before Jesus. They did not know the name of Jesus. They did not know the gospel. But they saw it from afar off. So they may not have had all the details, but they, but they knew who God was, and they, they, they put their trust in in him. In him. Abraham believed God, it, he, wasn't, he wasn't answering altar call, he was answering God's call to leave his home and, and inherit what God had for him. He believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness.
0: And it also says that Jesus, when he uh, died on the cross, he went to Sheol and he preached the gospel. To all those who had died before he had come. We also know that Jesus is appearing to people all over the world where Christians are not allowed, and Jesus is appearing to them in dreams, and they're getting saved supernaturally. But he also has called us to partner with him. So you say, well, why should we go to India this week if Jesus is going to do it himself? Because he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every person. They that believe will be saved, they that don't will not be saved. And so we are called into partnership, a co-mission, a co-laborship with Christ. And so it is an act of obedience for us to go. And an enormous privilege when you see somebody come to Christ, when you share the gospel with them. I remember one time I was in Ethiopia, and this like 80-year-old lady, she's in the hut. And I do this little eye, we were doing these eyeglass things where you, you uh, that was kind of like our roost to get in, Right. We're, we're here to bring eyeglasses to you, which is great because they couldn't sew, they couldn't cook, they couldn't see. So you do a little eye chart on them, and I'm not an optometrist, but you can do an eye chart on somebody. Give them glasses, they see, and they're just blown away. And then we'd say, um, so can I tell you who sent us here to give you these glasses, right? And so I talked to her about Jesus. And uh, Toby, you were on that trip with us, right? You did the eyeglass thing. Wasn't that an awesome trip? And, uh, and so this lady said to me, She said, uh, I can't receive Jesus because if I go home, my husband will beat me. And she said, can I receive Jesus and not tell anyone? I said, yeah, let's do that. So I prayed with her, and after we prayed, I looked at her, and her eyes changed. I saw the joy of the Lord in her eyes. I can't explain it. I just saw it. And her face was beaming. And she said, when I bow down in the temple, I'll be worshiping Jesus great. so we get a partner with Jesus as he's appearing to people we can't reach we're going to people we can reach and we're doing it together bringing salvation to the planet amen Uh, another question are there rewards for those who uh, know to serve God and do are there greater rewards for those who obey at a greater level and are there greater punishment for those who know they should but they don't interesting question less yeah and And we're running short on time so we got to hustle
1: we touched on this two weeks ago and i spoke about what happens when you die uh and and where do you go and part of that was how we get into heaven when we believe in jesus he did all the work to get us there but while we're here on the earth if we'll work for the kingdom because we love god we earn certain rewards it says that are laid up in heaven for us they call them treasures they call them rewards uh comes in different levels the bible talks about you know exceeding joy and different levels of joy for those who are doing the lord's work so that that can be seen as a reward Uh, the type of things that we earn rewards for enduring persecution by other people for our beliefs in christ uh, giving and fasting and praying for god and not for men not letting men see us you know to brag about how religious we are uh, using your talents or your minas, your money, and your, and your spiritual gifts for God to advance his kingdom. And righteousness and evangelism and perseverance in Christ. You can get what they call crowns, which are rewards that you get to lay at God's feet. So that's pretty exciting. Uh, visiting pri- prisoners, clothing the naked, feeding, you know, helping the poor. These are all the types of things that Jesus talked about that lay up treasure for you in heaven. And are there different levels of rewards? It does say that at the Bema seat, you get rewards for your works. And it also says that the white throne judgment of God for those who uh, did not believe in Jesus and are not in the book of life, they are also judged according to their works. So that there would be different levels of punishment.
0: Okay. So I want to capitalize on that for a moment. I've heard some say, even in this church, God forbid, but I've heard it, uh, that I don't care about rewards. I'm just glad I'm getting in. The Bible says that the race we're in right now is a spiritual race. Now, I, I pray to God you grab a hold of this right here, because every minute of your life, you can be wasting if you don't understand what I'm about to say. The Bema seat is a reward seat, and it's a, it is a term taken in Paul's time for the uh, Roman Olympics. And it's after you've run your race, you go up to the podium and you receive rewards. So we're in a spiritual race right now, and you've been given gifts and time and talents and treasures and abilities. And every prayer you pray, every dime you give, every table you set up, every person you witness to is being recorded in heaven. The Bible says so. It's being recorded. So when you show up and your race has been run and you get no rewards in heaven, it's a glaringly obvious That you did nothing for Jesus after he saved you as you lived on the earth. I do not want that to be my experience. I know you don't want that to be your experience. I want to honor him by getting so many rewards, it communicates we're loving God back while we're living here in the earth. And hey, I'll give them all back to him. I'll say, here, I don't need these. I got you. But it's an exchange of honor and humility and thank you. You don't want to show up to heaven empty handed, saying, well, thank God I made it. And then you stand there while everybody's going up to their award ceremony, and Jesus is saying, well done, good and faithful servant. And it gives you the one eye while you're over there in the corner. You don't want that. All right.
1: Mark says that if you feed the poor, you get more cable channels.
0: Um, okay, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to nail these last two, and, uh, and we're going to be out of time. So... Um, Can you lose your salvation? We've determined that I'll I'll take this one. Can you lose your salvation? Even on this panel, uh, we have two uh, theologians here who believe differently. This has been a debate for the last couple thousand years. You have scriptures on both sides. There are scriptures that make it very plain that nobody will snatch you out of my hand, Jesus said. And yet he wrote in the book of Revelations that I'll blot your name out of the book of life. It says that twice in the book of Revelation, it says it once in the book of Psalms. But here's what I want to do. I want to relieve the fear of every believer regarding the unpardonable sin and if your name is being blotted out of the book of life, because there are some dastardly doctrines like if you sin, and my wife was raised in this uh, belief, if you sin and you don't confess your sin before Jesus comes back, you're not going to heaven. Isn't that demonic? I'm going to call it demonic. That's horrible. That's that as though our, our salvation is based on our, our uh, worthiness. It's, it's, a, it's a gross interpretation, misinterpretation of 1 John 1, 9, saying that if we say we have no sin, we uh, lie, and we call God a liar. But if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to cleanse us of our sins, uh, forgive us of our sins, cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And then they extrapolate that saying, therefore, if you don't confess your sin, you're not forgiven, you're not cleansed of all the righteousness, so you're not going. But you don't find you're not going anywhere in that passage. There's a difference between your relationship with God and our fellowship with God. My wife and I are married. Bella's my daughter forever. But she can do something or I can do something to hurt one another, offend one another, and it hinders our intimacy, our fellowship, right? But it never breaks our relationship. So... Your sin does not break your salvation, because your righteousness didn't get you your salvation, so your unrighteousness can't undo your salvation. So, what about the losing of your salvation? All I know is you've got to work really, 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 really hard, if it's even possible, to lose your salvation. The Bible talks about the unpardonable sin, which as far as we can tell from the Scriptures, is when the Pharisees were calling the work of the Holy Spirit who they knew was the Holy Spirit, and they called it the work of Satan. That's what Jesus said. Hey, you can talk ugly about me, but you cannot talk ugly about the Holy Spirit. That won't be forgiven. So it is an outright rebellion, rejecting God, rejecting the Holy Spirit, and willfully doing so. It's not about sinning after you were saved. In the book of Hebrews, it talks about if we sin, after we have come to know the truth about the blood of Christ, there's no salvation left for us. He was talking to the Jews who were raised in animal sacrifices. He was talking to them about, if you go back to an animal sacrifice system, you have trampled the blood of Jesus, offended the Spirit of God, and there's no salvation for you in those animal sacrifices. You have to understand, the audience he was talking to, and they were going back to their old animal sacrifice ways, and he was saying the blood of Jesus is the only way in. There's no repentance through the blood of bulls and goats. So... If you're concerned about losing your salvation, I guarantee you, you're not going to. Do you understand that? If you're concerned about that, you have committed the unpardonable sin, you have not. It's the hard heart, rebellious, forget you, God, want nothing to do with you, and you've got to be in that state for a long time before God says, All right, I'll just let you have it. I'll let you have your way. That's who he's talking about. Does that help? Uh, and then the last question that was turned in, I need to address this, is uh, how, what is our stance on homosexuality? Mark will read out of Romans chapter 1 to Mars with the new, sec, new, new book. Uh, Romans 1 clearly calls homosexuality a sin uh, and as New Testament, and um, it is a sin, and it is a perversion of the holiness of God. God created Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve coming together reflect the wholeness and the nature of God. And so, when sin entered the human race, it entered our gene pool. And it has created all sorts of uh, perversions and dysfunctions. And all of us suffer with the sin gene. And it affects us in all sorts of different ways. It affects our souls. It affects our bodies. It affects our minds. It affects our relationships. And so... You and I have sinned just like everyone. And so the Bible categorizes homosexuality as a sin. Also categorizes judgment, being judgmental as a sin. And heterosexual (coughs) adultery is a sin. Lusting after a woman is a sin. Gossip is a sin. Drunkenness is a sin. I mean, so, and judging a homosexual is a bigger sin than being homosexual. Jesus says, Judge not, lest you be judged. So, And you say, well, yeah, what about love? Well, love is not the same thing as permissiveness. I love my children, so they get disciplined. Like one of my children said to me one time, could you just not love me for one day? (laughs) So we embrace and accept everybody, but we don't uh, pull the punches on calling sin sin because if you don't call it sin, there's no chance for freedom. There's no chance for deliverance. And this is the issue right here that is going to get us into a holy war. Because they are now categorizing calling homosexuality a sin as hate speech. And they are probably going to end up outlawing hate speech, which crushes free speech, which is what our nation is built on. And so like in other countries where pastors are ending up in prison for reading Romans chapter 1, good luck next week, Mark. <clears throat> um, and I say that tongue in cheek and it's humorous, but clearly we're headed that direction where they're now going to be calling this hate speech as though we are haters. We're not. We're calling sin, sin. We're calling what the Bible calls sin, sin, but we're not doing it with judgmental hearts. Uh, our job, the Bible says, is to teach the difference between holiness and unholiness, the clean and the unclean. And that goes for all of our uncleanliness and all of our unholiness so that we can repent and experience the grace and the forgiveness of God and the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. And as you know now, they're passing a law saying we are not allowed to engage in um, the healing and transformation of homosexuality to heterosexuality, which is possible. And I know those who have been healed in that way, and I know some that have been in their own congregation that have their own testimony of the healing power of God. That is becoming illegal and uh, can be in prison for trying to help somebody be transformed in that way. So it's going to get a little dicey. But to answer the question directly, we do believe it's a sin, we believe it's forgivable, and we believe it's transformable. But everybody is welcome here at the Gathering Place Church. Amen? Show them the
1: love of Christ. Love love the sinner and hate the sin, but show them the love of Christ. Right.
0: They know who he is. Right. Amen. So, uh, I'm going to, 1136, great time to close, but I'm going to open it up just for a question or two, and then we'll go. Thank you, John. Thank you. We have been waiting for this moment.
1: Let us play (laughs)
0: Trinity. I have an individual with a very good question. How do I know that? because I haven't heard anyone saying, that's a bad question. <laughs> Don't touch the mic.
3: can't touch the mic, sorry, so sorry.
0: Um, you hit
3: on it just now, actually. I, I, it breaks my heart when I see those signs that says, God hates a person, and we know he doesn't. But in Malachi, the first chapter, it says that he hated Esau. He, he loved Jacob, but he hated Esau. So can... How about that? What it, like God
0: hates someone? Yeah. Well, yeah, it, well, you need the microphone. You can't, yeah.
1: yeah in the Bible, uh, it ascribes that God has emotions to uh, be angry at people or he laughs at men who think that they can oppose him. You know, things like that. So, you know, Esau was evil and killed the ones that were good who were pursuing God. So I think that's man ascribing an emotion to God that we might feel rather than God speaking from the clouds, I hate you. Uh, I think God created us, and we know that he loves us, and all that he made is good. And We kind of pollute what is good, and he sent Jesus to try to get us unpolluted. So he's, his mission is to get us all back to heaven. So I, I don't believe that the statement, God hates people, would be correct.
0: Mark, my, Mark uh, Calvishman.
3: We're going to see this next week in Romans uh, where it refers to God's wrath. And uh, Paul says that God's wrath is on the human race because of their neglect of Him. But when we think of God's wrath, we think of proactive punishment. And we're going to see in Romans that, in fact, in this case, God judges us uh, and expresses His wrath by simply taking His hand away and saying, You can have whatever you want, live your life the way you want. We are punished more often by our sins than we are punished for our sins.
1: It, it's difficult to say for a surgeon to take a leg off of a child. But if the child has a, a creeping bacteria that's eating his flesh, then the decision is that you cut that off so it doesn't eat the whole child. And God's wrath is often against anything that opposes love, anything that opposes him. He sometimes has to cull the herd in order to keep, all people for being polluted I don't believe that's him hating I think that's him cutting off the leg to save the rest of the body he hated
0: he hated uh the wickedness that he knew was in Esau but Esau could be saved just like everybody else um okay one more we got something we need one from this side Josh you got somebody this on Oh, not Chris Sheridan. Oh, my gosh. Here we go. Here we go.
3: Don't worry. Don't worry. Chris on? A Can you hear a guy. He
0: has great okay. questions.
3: Uh, so, yeah, my question is just about um, this is something that I think has caused a lot of division over time. If you look at, like, the splintering of ver- various churches and things like that, historically speaking. But uh, whether or not the Bible is to be taking, taken literally true or if it's just metaphor, you know, where, what would you guys say about that question? Because I know it causes a lot of confusion
0: all right, with so people. Mark has a master's in divinity, so we're going to give him the shot at this. Well, Mark, Mark is sure. returning. <laughs> so, I, I, I fear
3: Chris Sheridan.
0: That, <laughs> that was funny.
3: That was a, that was a softball <laughs> question. I'm, I'm okay uh, with that.
0: All
2: right. So, the question is take the Bible literally, take it metaphorically, or some, somewhere in between. Yes. Um, <laughs> different different parts of it are supposed to be taken differently. And it's pretty obvious that some parts are supposed to be literal. Um, they're, they're talking about historical a, a particular historical event where something happened. Um, that's supposed to be taken literally. It, it literally happened there. Um, some things are supposed to be taken metaphorically. When Jesus said, I am the, the vine, um, he was not literally... He didn't literally mean he was a plant. Um, he 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 meant he was speaking metaphorically.
0: So, so the danger the, obviously the danger would be then if, if people want to see they want the Bible to say what they wanted to say that like I am the way the truth and the life. And New Age they'll say oh that means Christ consciousness when that's yeah. not what he meant at all. Right? No,
3: I think um, just for those that want to take this further, I. think, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Is that Gordon Fee or F.F. Bruce? trying to remember which one. Anyway, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. There's five types of literature that compose the Bible. And there's different rules that apply to how you understand and exegete those different forms of literature. The rules that apply to poetry can't be used to the rules that apply to history. And prophetic literature is different. The Psalms are different. Uh, apocryphal, the Revelation is different. So taking the Western mind and saying, okay, I'm just going to read this whole book as if it's history. If I, one of the most powerful literary forms in, in uh, the Middle East is hyperbole, the mother of all battles, the mother of all wars, blah, 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 blah. If you apply if you read some of the things like gouge out your eye, cut off your arm, that's hyperbole. No one in that form of literature and that culture would ever say, oh, that's what I'm supposed to do. But we, reading it as Westerners in a, in, a, in, a, in a present time, end up snake handling and all sorts of things. Or what I did. I read a word seven.
0: I was a young Christian. Go into your closet and pray. So I took my shoes out and went to my closet and closed the
3: door and prayed. I thought that's what I had to do cuz that's what it said. And and that's a credit to your heart and it's and it's not a credit to your understanding of the Bible <laughs> <laughs> at that point in your life. But just knowing that we're dealing with different forms of literature, they have different ways of construction, they have different ways of interpretation, don't confuse them or you're going to make a mistake. Okay, so what's the name of that book again? Well, it's called How to Read the Bible for All Its Worth. Okay, everybody ought to get that. excellent. Really, get that. really
0: good. How to Read the Bible for All Its Worth. All right. And you know, you
1: whenever you read the Bible you have to, and you're puzzled by something, you have to look at the character of Christ because he represented God. How could that metaphor reflect the love? How does it reflect love? It's not going to reflect hate from Jesus. It's going to reflect love or healing or encouragement. So try to figure out how it does that because we tend to do negative reading. God owns all the cattle on all the hills, a thousand cattle on all the hills. Well, well, who owns the cattle that are on the hill then? See, God doesn't own those cattle, does he? The Bible didn't say he owns those cattle too. You, know, you can be so strict in, you, in the way you read as to get a negative on things. But you should always be looking to see how does it love, how does it encourage, how does it forgive, how does it show the face of God, how does it reflect the way Jesus walked.
0: Yeah, we're going to let Professor Mark close um, us out. Uh,
2: um, we talked about metaphorical or symbolic. We talked about literally true and things in between, somewhere in between. Those are all ways for things to be true. It doesn't, because something is metaphorical or symbolic, doesn't mean it's it's false. It's still true, but it's true in a different way. Um, people disagree. A lot of people disagree. Some people think something is literally true. Some some story is literally true. Some think is very figurative. Some think it's entirely metaphorical. Um, I don't know that it really matters too much. If you if you read it and ask God to show you what he wants to show you from it.
3: Oh here. Uh, just quickly, the 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 biggest mistake we can make in this area of biblical interpretation is to end up hating one another because we happen to differ.
0: Amen. That's a great word to close on. Praise the Lord. And I wanna say forgive me from what I'm about to say you guys, but you know we're some imperfect If people say they do not believe in miracles today, our panel's made up of three lawyers. (laughs) And here they are, loving God with all their hearts. God bless you guys.